0: Grab your Bibles. We're going to head to Matthew chapter 6 and pick up a theme that we've been weaving through the last month and a bit. Before we get any further, let me just pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is alive that it is active, that it is able to accomplish. Not only able, but you say your word as it's proclaimed and sent forth, it will accomplish all that you send it forth to do. It never returns void. And so, Father, as we read your scriptures this morning, we pray that your word would accomplish through the power of your spirit all that you desire this morning. Do a work in us, Lord, that we might reflect you more and more, that we might know you more, deeply and see you more clearly and shine ever bright as the lights that you've called us to to shine, reflecting your eternal light in a world that is increasingly dark around us, for the glory of your name. Come Holy Spirit, breathe your breath upon us this morning. Give us listening ears to hear your voice, we pray, in Jesus' name. Matthew 6 verse 19 is where we're going to head. You know, I cannot remember the last time that I started with something humorous, but you look like you need it this morning, so you're welcome in advance. I came across this one, it made me smile. It says this, an elderly Scottish woman, I don't know why she had to be Scottish, but anyways, move on, was making her way through the countryside. Each time she came to crossroads, she would throw a stick in the air. Whichever way the stick came down was the direction she went. At one intersection, however, an old man saw her throw the stick, not once, not twice, But three times before resuming her journey, the old man was curious. Why are you throwing a stick like that, he asked. She squinted and replied, well, I'm letting God direct my journey by using the stick. Then why did you throw it three times, asked a curious old man. Because, she said, the first two times he was pointing me in the wrong direction. (laughs) I thought that was humorous. But the more serious application for us is how often do we live our lives like that, like this old lady? There's this veneer of spirituality. Perhaps we even think and convince ourselves that we're doing the right thing. We're genuinely being led by the Lord. And yet, so often, it's a thin veneer that really covers our own spiritual selfishness. It looks okay from the outside, but don't press too hard. Or what's exposed inside will be anything but pretty. And we've been examining over the past few weeks this concept of what it means to be wholehearted. A people who love the Lord remembering the greatest commandment is what? It's not a trick question. I should have said that up front. It's not a trick question. It's to love the Lord, isn't it? Not half-hearted, not three-quartered-hearted, but to love the Lord with all our hearts. And of course, Jesus is passionate about having a church and a people who love him wholeheartedly. One of the strongest rebukes we read in Revelation to the the church at Ephesus. And he said, you're doing all these things well. There's this veneer of spirituality and a lot of it was good things. But he's pressing and he's saying, I'm looking inside. And yet you've lost your first love. And the harshest of the rebuke is not just, so just tidy up a few things, you know, you, you probably could work. He says... So recover that love or I will remove your lampstand. It's all or nothing. Either you're a wholehearted people or nothing counts for anything in the eyes of the Lord. And So we've been looking at many different things that would keep us from being this wholehearted people and trying intentionally to to press on this veneer of spirituality, looking at distraction and discouragement, and last week we looked from this same portion of passage of Scripture about anxiety and how that really reveals at its essence a lack of trust in God and who He is and His faithfulness to provide for us, what that means to be a people who would truly grab a hold of that invitation to trust Him wholeheartedly. So this passage we'll read from verse 19. It's in many many ways related. In fact, in Luke's account, he actually puts this portion after this call to not be anxious, but to be trusting in the Lord. So there's no doubt there's a connection here, but let's read the passage and reflect on these words of Christ and what it means for us today. Jesus, of course, is preaching here. It's the Sermon on the Mount. We've been in this passage quite a bit this year. He says this from verse 19. If then the light is in you, if if then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? One more verse. No one can serve two masters, for either they will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is the word of the Lord. The moment you mention that last little passage, you see a few little people getting nervous. Someone's probably thinking, this is the one Sunday, I picked the one Sunday to come along when they're going to talk about money. And Well, you'd be right, but you'd be wrong as well. Because yes, Jesus is talking about money, but his perspective is much broader than just money. It does involve your money, but it's more than money. And I'd make this observation as we want to delve into treasures and money and what that reveals and why it's important to Jesus, that Jesus is not after our money. That's not the emphasis of this passage. He's ultimately after our hearts. That's what he's challenging us. What is it that we will love and treasure? And yet he makes this distinction that's too significant and important for us in this area not to dwell upon, not to think through, and not to examine in our own lives. He says this, and I'll read it again. You're talking about not laying up yourselves for treasure on earth. For this reason, verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. But where your treasure is, there your heart will be also so here's the gift and the challenge god is saying if you want a simple test to know where it is that your heart is or how wholehearted you are being in your pursuit of me here's here's one black and white test that he's given us he says simply this if you want to know where your heart is look for where your treasure is or as someone once says if you want to know where your heart is just look inside your wallet. We have here a window to our souls. A gift, and probably most of us would say a challenge. See, have you ever had an x-ray? Who's had an x-ray? Oh, as many as I thought. Well, I've, I've personally never broken a bone and needed an x-ray. And if we, we did 12 years of parenting successfully without ever needing an x-ray. And then we had three broken bones within a period of about three months. Three different kids, all different accidents, all on holidays. So you can imagine we had a wonderful little three-month period there. And in one of the instances, the break was very obvious. It was a broken arm and this particular daughter had done such a good job that she'd broken all of the bones in the arm, not just one of them. It was, I forget the specific term, but not good is what I called it. It's my technical term. And I knew the moment that she'd done it that something was particularly bad. Not because of the screams, but because of the silence. That's when you know something really serious has happened and she was white as a ghost. And I thought, oh dear, that and the fact that the arm was perpendicular and in a completely different angle than it should have been. It was a full arm cast and it was a, quite a journey for her. She was very brave. The other two breaks, though, were not nearly as obvious. They both involved the collarbone. Extremely painful, but extremely hard to diagnose and tell. And in fact, we do have, other families might have this, we have some of our children who are not quite as tough and they can be hypochondriacs. Anyone have one of those? Any, anybody one of those? But it's always hard to tell whether there's something genuinely there or not. So in one instance, I was like, I don't know. I don't think there's really anything there, but I guess we'll take, long, you know, take this child along to the hospital. We happened to be on the Gold Coast, and to be honest, I felt very bad afterwards, but I was thinking, this is going to interrupt my whole holiday. I just want to go to the beach and have a surf. And anyway, went to the hospital, and sure enough, not only was it broken, but the collarbone was completely displaced. Is that the word? The doctors in the room. It was snapped through, and in no way in an alignment. But there was no way to tell other than an X-ray. The moment the X-ray is there, it is right before your eyes, undeniable, in black and white. And in the same way, Jesus is giving us, if you like, a spiritual x-ray. He's saying, I want you to think about this. I do. This, this is important for you to examine in your own life. For where your treasure is, you will find your heart. Would you be willing to submit yourself to that kind of an x-ray? <laughs> or would we be worried about what might turn up if we did? But let's think about that for a moment. So what does our treasure say about our heart? If we were to, s- to take stock for just a moment, remembering this is not about how much money we have. There's people whose treasure could be in their money who have very little. There's people whose treasure could be focused on their money who have a lot. It's not how much money we have, but it's how much of our desire and our focus is consumed by our money. How much control does that have of our affections and our desires and the way that we organise and rearrange our lives? What does our treasure reveal about our hearts? It's an uncomfortable thought, isn't it? Yes? But we're going to be uncomfortable together and push through this morning because there is a wonderful gift and opportunity at the end. You see... Jesus then goes on, he says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be. And this is the problem, is that the pursuit of treasure is mutually exclusive. There is no place where you can entertain and have a bit of both. He says, if you love one, you will despise the other. These two pursuits are mutually exclusive. So it's not if you will treasure, it's not, well, can I just have a little bit of both? This is the challenge, is that you will treasure something, you will spend your life and your substance on something, and ultimately you will serve something. So the question for us this morning is what will we treasure? What will we spend our life upon, and who or what will we serve with our lives? I'm going to make a couple of comments here. Because sometimes we, we read a passage like this and we think that in some way Jesus is calling us to a life of less. Less or lack. Ah, oh, well, you know, that's just the Christian way, isn't it? That we're just supposed to be miserable and we're supposed to, you know, take on some sort of poverty vow and wear old clothes and not enjoy anything. See, I, I want to dispel those myths because Jesus is not calling us to lack or to less. Jesus is genuinely calling us and concerned about calling us to life. That's what he came for. He said he came to bring us life and life more abundantly. That's, that's what he came for. And so Jesus, again, he's not concerned so much about our money as he is that he knows that money is a worthless and a ruthless taskmaster. It is an idol that will control and consume our lives. He's saying, I want to save you from that, a life spent on worthless pursuits. One of the quotes of money, you probably heard this one before, but I love this. John D. Rockefeller, who was a man far wealthier than anyone alive today. He owned 90% of the oil and gas industry of his time. And he was asked at one point, how much money is enough? Anyone know his response? Have you heard this one? That's right. Someone mouthed it there, just a little bit more. <laughs> the wealthiest man who lived in possibly the last couple of hundred years. How much money do you need? Just a little bit more. Jesus is saying, it's never enough. That's right. Is that really the way that we want to live our life? Consumed by this insatiable desire for things and stuff. Or is there another call? As he goes on, and we looked at this last week, he's saying, Seek first the kingdom of heaven. Isn't your life more than these things? That's the way the Gentiles live. They they live for earthly treasure. They live consumed by it. They're worried about always materialism, consumerism. Isn't there another way? Isn't there more to your life? Aren't Aren't you put on this planet for more than just being consumed by that stuff? Isn't there a path to life and life more abundantly? And I would say yes there is and it comes down significantly to this area of treasure. What will we treasure in our lives? What will we spend treasuring? At this moment with the Lord I've used this illustration before but we're cleaning up our house, our first house, getting ready to sell and to move to the place we're in now and in this particular house we'd had four kids and accumulated who knows how much stuff and I just never had time to to sort it out and so in fact my solution was to just find more ways to store more stuff. I built a whole second tier into the garage just to put more stuff in, just putting off the inevitable. Well the inevitable came and we were sorting through all these boxes and I had a few uh, younger kids at the time and I came across this big box And I couldn't remember what any of these things were, so we pulled it down with my girls. We opened it up, and they're like, Dad, what's that? They got this glimpse of just glimmering, shining things. And it was, in fact, a box of my old trophies, trophies that I'd displayed with great pride on my bedroom wall for many years and didn't quite know what to do when we moved into the new house. But they were trophies mainly of sporting accomplishments. I was a decent student, but certainly didn't win many awards for academia. But I won a lot of trophies and awards for sporting accomplishments. So these were ribbons, these were trophies, these were the pride and joy of a young man's life, the successes, the, the victories, the spoils of war. So we opened the box and my girls were like, Dad, what, what, what is this? What's in this box? I said, well, take a seat. Let me tell you what is in this box. And so we began on a journey. And I was telling them victories and the struggles and the battles. It took about two minutes and the eyes were glazed over. Oh, Dad, I thought there was something interesting in there. Is is that that it? Is that really all you got? And I thought, isn't it funny that, that there was my box of a life spent with, in the eyes of some, perhaps some significant accomplishments, the trophies, of this life. And at that particular portion of my life, let alone as I take one step from this to the eternity, they're absolutely good for very little other than exactly what I did, which was put them on the top of the rubbish the rubbish dump and send them off where they needed to go. I'm not a hoarder. So there they went, all the trophies, the greatest of my human endeavors reduced to nothing more than a glittery adornment of the rubbish dump. That's what Jesus is calling us to think through. What is the focus of your life? Will it be for trophies? Will it be for the treasures of this life? In the scheme of eternity, what do they count for? Or will it be a life spent pursuing the treasure that will never be destroyed? Moth and rust cannot touch it. It is of eternal worth and value, trophies or treasure. And there's something about that particular divide that reveals a very significant part of our heart. Jesus is calling us to a life that is full, a life of fruitfulness and a life of abundance. And that's found as we treasure him. I want to make that point just one more way. Quickly, and then we'll bring this time to a conclusion. I've been looking with some interest at the recent uh, census results. Has anyone had a chance to kind of look through? There's a big census that occurred just within the last month or so. The ABS has re- released, begun to release some of the statistics. Some fascinating ones in there. You probably have seen that for the first time as a country, we are less than 50% of a population that a or would nominate themselves as Christian. 43%, in fact. That is all. Down from 2016, it was 52.1%, so we were just over the 50% mark. If you go back 20 years ago, it was around 61%. And of course, if you go back far enough, probably a generation or so, it was over 90% of people in our country who would subscribe to some sort of Christian faith. That's an amazing turnaround, isn't it? In a generation, but particularly in escalation over the last 20 years, moving away from being a people as, as a nation that would subscribe to Christianity, and of course, to no religions up to nearly 40 percent. It was, it was interesting watching some of the main news streams grab a hold of that particular statistic and holding this up as some great triumph of modern secularism. We're a progressive nation, look at us how we've turned away, or we've evolved, or whatever word they might want to use, into a modern, secular nation. What I find fascinating, and the reason that I bring this up, and I know we've talked about it this year and many years, is that with this particular turn, we're seeing what I think is an incredibly revealing and strange experiments. We're in the midst of a strange experiment and it's this, as Western nations that have thrived under a worldview based on Christian principles, which we have, with these notions of equality, freedom, purpose, meaning all derived from a Christian worldview, and we're now turning wholesale and with increasing speed away from that foundation. And earlier in the year I I referred and mentioned a guy by the name of Tom Holland who is writing from a secular point of view. He's not a believer. But he, as, as well as many others, are sounding the alarm bells and saying, hang on. He calls it, we're moving as a society into a place of unanchored faith. We're trying to hold on to all of these values of Western society, but we're chopping off the branch that we've been sitting on. And, and secular people are, are calling this the greatest disaster in a generation. We're creating this vacuum of identity. There's another statistic that grabbed my eye this particular week. So this is the question we've got to ask. With that turn away from who we are as as a country, who we have been, are we genuinely any happier? Are Are we better off? Is this great descent into secular humanism something that is of benefit to us as a country? One particular statistic, and this is from the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare, they did a a national study as well, which was released just a week or so ago, July 2022. And it said this, that the proportion of Australians who are accessing subsidised mental health-related services, so these are people who are actually diagnosed with all sorts of mental conditions, they're seeking help for it, has more than doubled in the last 10 years alone. And as I delved into that, the interesting thing there, you know, what, what area or what age group was the area of greatest increase? It was the proportion of people 16 years and under. It was the kids. What is the product of this shift away in modern secular, secularism and humanism from a Christian and a biblical worldview? It is that we have brought up a lost younger generation as we've told this younger generation that everything is it's for them it's about them and it's never beyond them we've developed this system that has driven them towards the fragility of their own personal desire I would suggest this, and I'm not the only one, as I said, Tom Holland, other secular people as well as many Christians are calling and pointing people and trying to wake us up that there is a veneer of secular humanism that is wearing very thin. That we are a generation that will see in the next 10 years or so people, and I pray and believe, turn away as this gap between what secularism offers and what it provides widens as we see this endless promise of self-improvement, it's nothing more than a mirage that leaves us thirstier than ever. How are we going to tie that back in? Well, grab your Bibles, come to Psalm 1. I want to give us this final picture. This is where I want to land this morning and then tie this all in together. See, Christ is calling us a life, and a life lived in abundantly, even though we live in the midst of a world that's calling us away and to everything else. Someone says this, blessed is the man. I've got a little note here in my particular Bible, just for the ladies amongst us, and says the Hebrew word here is to portray a representative example of a godly person. So there you go, blessed is the person, the man, the woman, Who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Grab this, I love this. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. His delight is in the ways of the Lord. His delight, his joy is in God and God's ways. And on his ways, on his law, he meditates day and day. And night, verse 3, he's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season. Its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. What does this picture give us? It gives us an an, an incredible contrast, doesn't it, between one person. Blessed is this type of person whose delight is the Lord. This is the picture of a life that's deeply nourished, that bears fruit, that is full. It's a life of fulfillment, of joy and abundance. And compare that with the life of the wicked. It says they're like Chaff. It's fragile, it's brittle. They're here today, gone tomorrow. It doesn't take much wind just to blow them over. A secular progressive mirage, to put it perhaps, in our modern vernacular. What is the difference? What's the key? What is the secret here? It's the one who would delight in the Lord and His ways. That is the treasure of their life, that is their pursuit, that is their direction, and that is their desire. That's God's will and His purpose and His intention for us. That's what He's calling us to. Don't store up treasure, can't you see? It's only going to leave you more thirsty and empty. It's going to leave you as the wicked. It's a a system that's falling apart at the seams. I want to call you to another place. A place of life. Not the worthless treasure of the trophies of this life, but the eternal treasure of a life lived, flourishing, full of joy, full of peace, bearing fruit in season and in out, and out of season. And here is the key. It's the people who would learn to treasure him. So let me finish with that question that we began with, and it's simply this. We've read uh, Jesus' teaching, his instruction. So our response is this. What will we treasure? What will we treasure? What will we spend our life upon? And ultimately, who or what will we serve? And I'd like to say that it's as easy as just making a decision this morning, just coming forward and saying a prayer and everything will be fixed up for the rest of your life. But as we've talked about in this series, this is a journey of walking towards wholeheartedness. It's a journey of recognizing and allowing God to reveal those ways in us that need to change saying I love is this, is there's no idol more fiercely defended than money. We are a people by nature living in a world around us where we wouldn't be human if there wasn't a degree of attraction and temptation. And so it's having the willingness and the boldness to stand there, if you like, use the analogy again, in the midst of the spiritual x-ray. And say, Lord, would you reveal my heart? Not once as we sit here on a Sunday, but Lord, I want to walk upon that path. Daily, would you reveal my heart? Would you show me where my treasure is? Not so that we can be discouraged and disappointed and, but so that we can come to him, the great physician, so we can reveal the true nature of our condition and allow him to bring correction. To bring us back to that path of life where our desire and our delight is him isn't that where we want to live where we're nourished where there's life abundantly where there's joy where there's peace not just chasing after all the things that are like chaff they're just gone in the wind in the light of eternity they count for nothing let's pray Father, if we are all truly honest, and I hope if we can be honest any place it's here in your presence, gathered together as your people, knowing that none of us walk the planet in perfection, but knowing that it is your good grace and your goodness that leads us towards repentance, Lord, we acknowledge that we can easily be a people who have many idols, In fact, it was Luther who once said, the human heart is an idol factory. And Lord, there are fewer idols with stronger appeal and pull, particularly in the world in which we live, than this area of treasure and money. You make it clear, Lord, that we cannot desire and pursue and hunger after and thirst for Two masters will love one and will serve the other, will serve one, despise the other. So I pray, Lord, as we bring this time to a close this morning, just that we would have the courage to allow your Holy Spirit to search our hearts. That you would show us, Lord, if there indeed are things in our hearts that are not pleasing in your sight. That if there's ways and means in which we've been seeking after, treasuring just a little bit more, well, if I could just, if I could, Lord, if I could just have, if I could just have a bit more money in the paycheck, if I could just have a new car, if I could, if I could, Lord, where our desire and our delight has been the things of this world rather than that life giving limitless source that we find as we turn to you and make our delight the Lord Himself. Bring us back to that place, I pray, in Jesus' mighty name.